Good morning. Glad you're here. We're continuing in this series in 1 John. And uh, the last six weeks or so, a new television show has been airing on Amazon Prime. It's called The Rings of Power. And I have stored up a, a long, exhaustive catalog of illustrations that I'm going to pummel you with, pummel you with in the coming weeks. Raise your hand if you're watching The Rings of Power. Let's hear, see who the righteous ones are among us. All right. Praise God. I think The Rings of Power has been great. And uh, in one recent episode, uh, one of the characters, this woman who lives in the Southlands, her name is Bronwyn, uh, the, the, this orc horde, right? There's orcs. If you don't understand what an orc is, come see me after worship, okay? I know I've lost like half of you already, so might as well just keep going. This orc horde's beginning to descend into the valley where their village is situated, and they're going to attack. And Theo, the, the son of this woman, Bronwyn, comes and runs to her and says, tell me the story and the words that you used to tell me when I was young. And she says to him, in the most Tolkien-esque line, in my opinion, so far in the show, the shadow is but a passing thing. There is light and high beauty far beyond its reach. The shadow is but a passing thing. There is light and high beauty far beyond its reach. When I heard that line, it stuck with me through the rest of the episode because I think it's deeply biblical. In fact, it summarizes one of the major themes in 1 John. It's almost identical to something we read last week. If you look in chapter 2, verse 8, John writes, The darkness, the shadow, is passing away, and the true light is already shining. One thing John has been wanting to communicate to his readers and to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that because Jesus, the light of the world, has come, and because the shadow and the darkness is already passing away, those who are truly in faith connected to Jesus will walk in the light. They will walk in the light because God is light and Jesus is the light of the world. Last week... John gave the Christians in these divided and confused churches that he initially wrote this letter to two tests, two tests to determine whether they're truly walking in the light and not in the darkness. We looked at that in verses 3 through 11 of chapter 2. He gave two ways that we can know that we know. That's the language he used, that we can know that we know. Next week, by the way, he's going to give us a third test, a third way we can know that we know in verse 18 through the end of chapter 2. But here in verse 12, what John does is he pauses. He taps the brakes on his line of thinking. These verses are really an interruption in John's arguments, and there's a reason for that. Here's the reason John interrupts himself. He's a really, really experienced and wonderful grandfather pastor. And he knows, you see, that when you attempt to bring clarity to the question of who is really a Christian, who is really connected to Jesus, that it is possible to inadvertently destroy someone's assurance who really is a believer. All this talk about tests and ways to know you know, John understood. Those things can cause some of us unease. They can cause some of us disquiet about our own salvation. Maybe you felt that last week as the text was read and preached. Very practically speaking, um, sometimes if you're here and you're a Christian, the Christian life gets us to a point where we say to ourselves, I can't do this. I can't do this anymore. I cannot keep this up. 
I think there are times when every single one of us who are Christ followers will feel that way. And also, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're thinking about Christianity and you're looking at all these Christians and wondering what Christianity is about, maybe you hear these last few verses that I taught last week and you think the same thing. You think, I could never do that. John, the apostle who wrote this letter, knows that. And he's really sensitive to that. So he puts a pause on his line of thought. And in verses 12 through 14, he offers us some reassurance. He offers us encouragement. These verses are intended to remind every single one of us of the reality of our lives if we have believed the gospel. And then out of that encouragement and out of that reinsurance, John gives us a a warning. He gives us a challenge and he calls every one of us to align ourselves with Jesus first. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to look at these verses in two parts. The first part is be encouraged, be encouraged. And the second part is be warned, be warned. So encouragement first, you're welcome, by the way, and then warning second. So first John tells us be encouraged. One way you can see that verse 12 is sort of a pause is that translators, if you have a Bible with you, I I bet your translator of whatever edition you're using sets the typeset apart so it reads like verse or it reads like poetry. Mine, the ESV has that. And what John, the reason translators do that is is to show us that John is changing gears here. And what John does in, in these verses is he addresses three groups. You heard Matt probably read them. Little children, young men and fathers. And he speaks to each group twice in three verses. Now, I think these groups are metaphorical. He's not literally and only referring to children, young men, and fathers. Um, He's saying, rather, that the spiritual life, life with Jesus, is a process. It's a process. Every single one of us start out as children, in the faith. And then we grow spiritually into young men or young women. And then finally we become spiritual fathers and mothers. But no matter our level of maturity, all of us need to know what is true of us. And so John gives three reminders in these few verses that are intended to encourage us. Let's look at them. He says, be encouraged. First, be encouraged because of the position you're in. Look at verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The first thing John says to encourage us if we're doubting, to encourage us if we're struggling with assurance, is that our sins are forgiven. The position you are in is that you stand before God the judge, not anymore as a condemned sinner. If you've united yourself to Jesus in faith, you stand before God the judge in exactly the same standing that Jesus himself does. Do you know that? Do you have certainty, certainty that your sins, past, present, and future have been wiped away? This gets us, my friends, to the beating hearts of the Christian message. Listen, it is possible to know, to know for certain that your sins are forgiven, your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. There's a relatively old um, evangelistic tool that is called evangelism explosion. Some of you undoubtedly are familiar with it. And and some of um, the best things evangelism explosion does when they're training people how to share their faith is they give what are called the two diagnostic questions, a way to engage people who don't yet 
believe the gospel. And the first diagnostic question that you're to ask someone is this. If you were to die tonight, do you know for certain that you would go to heaven? The second question is, if you were to stand at the gates of heaven and God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to God? Now, the first of those questions, if you were to die tonight and you, and go to heaven, are you certain that you would go to heaven? If you answer that question, well, I hope so. I feel pretty good about that. I think most likely I would get in. I hope God forgives me. I hope I've done enough. If that's what you think, then listen to me. Listen, you do not have assurance. And more importantly, you do not yet really understand the message. The message of the gospel is that your sins have been forgiven. That is certain bedrock for any single one of us who comes to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ on the cross died for every sin that all of us will ever commit. Jesus Christ has completely paid the debts that our sins incur against God, who is rightly against and opposed to sin. That's why John says at the end of verse 12, you're forgiven of your sins for his name's sake or on account of his name. Why does God forgive you? Listen, God does not forgive me or you because of anything we do. God doesn't even forgive you because you repent. He doesn't. Nor does God forgive you because you were sorry enough. He deemed you to be sorry enough for your sins. That's, by the way, one of the great insights of the Reformation that caused a recovery of the gospel. If you think that God forgives you because of the level or quality of your repentance or the level or quality of your sorrow, then you'll never have assurance because we can never know if we've repented enough or if we're sorry enough. You're forgiven on the sake, on account of his name. You're forgiven on account of Jesus. You draw from Jesus' account and your debts against God the Father are wiped off of the books. Well, is Luke saying you don't need to repent and you don't need to believe? No, I'm not saying that. Repentance and faith are necessary, but repentance and faith are like a light switch. You walk into a dark room in your home and you turn on a light switch. If you've paid your bills, right? You turn on the light switch, the, the light comes on. But the, the reason the light comes on isn't because that light switch has some sort of magical power, right? And Brian, correct me here because my electrical knowledge is very, very slim, but I'm pretty certain that when you flip the switch, you're opening the conduit for the electrical power to rush in and amplify the light. Faith in Jesus is like that. If you come to Jesus and you trust in him, you're completely forgiven. But the repentance and the faith is just the receiving. It's the receiving of what Jesus has done in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. If you come to Jesus Christ, John says, and you trust in him, you are completely forgiven. That's the position you're in. So be encouraged. He also gives us a second reason. Be encouraged because of the power you have. He writes to the young men, verse 13, you have overcome the evil one. And again, verse 14, you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You've overcome the evil run. John's saying that we have real power, real power against the evil one and against his lies if we trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because the word of God abides in you. What does that mean? I think it, it could mean multiple things. I do find it interesting that often in the New Testament, the word of God and the spirit of God are used interchangeably. And I think what John is getting at here 
is that when we come to Christ in faith, we are given as his children the fullness of the Holy Spirit so that the Spirit abides in us, which makes it possible for us to fight against the evil one and his lies and his deceit. John saying, be encouraged because you have power for the spiritual war that you are in. But you need to know what kind of war it is we're fighting. When we think about spiritual warfare, well, let me say, when I think about spiritual warfare, I think about like pitched battles. You know, I think Saving Private Ryan or Braveheart or the Lord of the Rings, shocker, right? Huge armies fighting against one another in very obvious ways on a flat and open field. I think it's better, though, to think of spiritual warfare with a different metaphor. Spiritual warfare in reality is much like 21st century warfare, which is asymmetrical. You know, instead of a pitched battle, imagine spiritual warfare like a Russian hacker holed up somewhere in St. Petersburg or Moscow and programming bots and algorithms based on data harvested from Facebook, which you should get off of, Pastoral Council, and Google to spread misinformation that's intended you to, to index you towards their desired behavior or their desired goal. That's the kind of warfare the devil fights. What does Jesus call him? The father of what? Lies. The father of lies, who was a liar from the very beginning. But he says here, we have his word abiding in us by his spirit. And we can overcome by believing what is true because the spirit of truth resides in us. So be encouraged. The third reason we should be encouraged is because of the person you know. He writes to fathers twice. Verse 13. And verse 14, and he says the same thing both times. Verse 13, you know him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, because you know him who is from the beginning. We looked at that word know last week, remember? And we said that in the Bible, that word know does not just refer to head knowledge, which we tend to think it refers to because we live in an enlightenment world. It doesn't just refer to the intellect. Rather, it's a deeply relational and intentional knowledge that that word refers to. It refers to a connection of all of who we are with all of who Jesus is. A connection of all of who we are with all of who Jesus is. So John is saying, be encouraged because you're deeply and unbreakably united to Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not to know truths about God, but to know God deeply, personally, relationally, to know Jesus. This week, the Lord led me to how the apostle Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1. Listen to what Peter says. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Now listen, through the knowledge, there's that word again, through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through knowledge of his promises, you may become, this is how close you are to Jesus, partakers of the divine nature partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The scriptures say that we become partakers of the divine nature through knowledge of his precious promises to us. Just practically speaking, let me just give you a personal illustration. In my life, here's how this sometimes has looked. At at times, uh, when I feel the most 
the most, uh, like I'm struggling the most, when I feel the most doubtful, at, at times in my life when I've been deeply afraid, one of the precious promises that Jesus, through the Spirit, has given to me is the promise that God makes to his people in Isaiah 43. Listen to what Isaiah 43 says. God says to you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You're mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame will not consume you, for I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious in my eyes, honored, and I love you. The Holy Spirit takes that truth and he experientially imprints it on my heart. And I experience, I encounter, I feel God's love and God's presence through trust in his promises. I wonder if you've had a similar, similar experience. That's what it means to, to know God. So be assured, John says. Be encouraged because of the position you're in, your sins are forgiven. Because of the power you have, the word of God abides in you. And because of the person that you deeply and intimately know. When you're hurting, when you're struggling, when you feel like you just want to be done with it all, remember those things. So John gives us reassurance, doesn't he? John gives us encouragement. And then he spurs us in these next few verses into steadfast awareness of our calling in the world. He warns us next to order, to order our loves rightly. He warns us to order our loves rightly because of the assurance we can have in the gospel. So let's look at that. Be encouraged first, be warned second. John gives, verse 15, a really clear directive. Couldn't be much clearer. Look at what he says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, wait a minute, John. Aren't we supposed to love the world? I mean, the most famous verse in the Bible says, For God so loved the world, right? Well, obviously, the word world in John's writings and in all of the New Testament has multiple shades of meaning. And here, when John says, do not love the world, he doesn't mean do not love people. We're called to love people, all people for that matter. Rather, here, world means worldly attitudes, worldly ways that are set in opposition to God and to God's love. The word world here refers to a cancerous mood that is so common that it's like, it's like an airborne pollutant that we inhale every day, and it's all around us, and it's assumed by many of us. It is the fundamental anti-God state of being. In verse 16, he explains further what he means by the world. He said, do not love it, and then he tells us exactly what he means. Look there. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions or life. These things are not from the Father, he writes, but from the world. So John warns us against these three lusts, these three desires of the world. There's lust of the flesh. Clearly, he has in mind here sexual temptation, the, the epitome of deformed love, where an image bearer who deserves sacrificial love 
from someone else is treated rather as an object of desire that we take pleasure from. But the word refers more than just to sexual desire. It's any desire of our flesh for food, for drink, for instant gratification, for control, and on and on. Then there's the lust of the eyes. That's things like greed, envy, jealousy, discontentment, and as Ronald Rollheiser puts it, the cancerous restlessness of our age. The cancerous restlessness of our age. And finally, there's the pride of possessions or the pride of life. The bent in every single one of us apart from Jesus to rebel against authority, to go our own way, and to say, who are you, God, to tell me what to do? These three things... John says, constitute the fundamental temptations that crash against every one of us every single day. Every one of us, every single day. And here's the thing. They are as ancient as the world. They're as ancient as the world. Uh, I found it just fascinating this week. Many commentators draw a parallel between John, 1 John 2.16 and Genesis 3. Um, when the serpent tempts Eve in the garden. Let's just read Genesis 3. I think the parallel is so close that it cannot be accidental. Here's what we hear in the earliest, one of the earliest stories the scriptures tell us. Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Did you catch it? Good for food, the lust of the flesh. Pleasing to the eye, the desire of the eyes. Desirable for gaining wisdom, the pride of life. These temptations are archetypal to the entire human story. John says these are not from the Father. In fact, verse 17, the world is indeed passing away along with its desires. He's saying we cannot love these things first because they will not last. In fact, they are transient. They're vaporous. They're going to disappear. They have no real substance. They cannot give us what we most desperately want and what we genuinely need. Can I appeal to your sense of life experience? Haven't we experienced this in our life, friends? All of us, all of us have fallen prey to these worldly desires countless times. And the Holy Spirit speaking to us through John's letter wants us to see how they always fail us. Always. Be warned, he says. These desires, this love for the world is not going to last. It's not where our deepest loves and our deepest longings should be aimed. What do you think is going to happen to you when you fall into the desires of the flesh? Think about that honestly in your head. What do I think is going to happen to me when I look at pornography? What do I think I'm going to gain from adulterous thoughts do these things really fill your life with good? Have they ever done that? Have any of those things ever one time made your life any better? No, no. They only bring shame. They only bring brokenness. They only bring mistrust. 
When you have the desire of the eyes and you think, if I buy that car, I'll feel better. If I buy that boat, I'll be happier. If I eat more chocolate, it will take the pain away. If I have another drink, it will numb the hurt. A vacation to this place will make my children love me and will make my family more content. Does it work? No, it doesn't work. Our desires simply cannot be met by buying what the world sells based on a false promise. When you have the pride of life, the pride of possessions, look at what I have done. In pastor worlds, it's I planted a church. I had X number on Sunday. We've had X number of conversions. For you, it might be look at what I have built. Look at my accomplishments. You might feel great for a time, but you're still just a man. You're still limited by your undeniable humanness. You're not a God, and neither am I. No possession or lifestyle will ever change that. Don't we know from experience that John is telling us the truth? These things along with the world, as they exist in opposition to God who is forever praised, are passing away. It's like Bronwyn said. The shadow is but a passing thing. So be warned. Do not love the world. The world with its desires is passing away. And I I want to, as we wrap up, make one more connection that I noticed this week. One that should fill us with hope. It filled me with hope and I hope it fills you with hope. You know, we talked about that parallel in 1 John 2, 16, back to the Genesis narrative. And it's a provocative parallel. I think it's undoubtedly something that John had in his mind as he was writing, as one who would have been as a Jewish man familiar with these ancient stories. But that verse parallels another story too. When the second Adam, Jesus, was in the wilderness, not in a garden, by the way, with only one rule. You had one job, Adam, one job with only one rule, but in a wilderness when the evil one came to tempt him. How many temptations did the devil give Jesus? Does anybody know? Three. If you're God, turn these stones into bread, the lust of the flesh. Give into your body's desire for satisfaction, pleasure, and instant gratification. If you worship me, I'll give you the world. Go up to the top of the temple and see the lust of the eyes. You can have it all with no boundaries. Throw yourself off the temple, Jesus, and even the angels will catch you if you're God. The pride of life, Jesus, receive glory and awe and become a celebrity because everybody sees who you are. But Jesus, unlike us, And unlike our first father and mother, did not give in. In fact, he fought off the devil. He said, no, my heart will be set on God and his word. I will be filled with the spirit and I will do what my first dad should have done and cast you away from me because you've been a liar from the beginning. And here's the good news. In Christ, we have that same power. Christ has conquered. And the scriptures tell us elsewhere that in him we are super conquerors. You're an avenger. You're more than conquerors. There is light and high beauty 
far beyond the reach of the darkness. Be encouraged, be warned, and fight in the strength of Christ that is yours. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, let's pray.